I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter. <laughs> we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. We pray that the Lord will be with us tonight. And uh, I'm Sean McCraney, your host. You know, when uh, we first started out on TV here in Utah, and we were talking all about Latter-day Saints, uh, and now that we're talking a lot about Christianity and what goes on with Christians and things like that, we're really, it's all the same game. It really is all the same. It's just we're playing on a different court. We were playing on a court uh, in one place uh, when we were doing the LDS. Now we're playing the same game. We're just moved to a different court. And what I mean by that is when I was going after Mormonism, many of the things that came against me had to do with the same things that are being thrown against me now. So. I've gotten wind of people who say, you know, you know, I'm not going to listen to the guy who rolls his shirt up or has his shirt unbuttoned. So we're back to looking at the clothes, which is what the LDS, and I know humans do this. It's part of the reason I kind of do that. Uh, another one was when I was LDS, they used to say, you know, Sean, if you start going down the road of apostasy, you're going you're gonna to cling on one thing and, the, and you're going to embrace it. And then it's going to open the door to another thing and another thing. And, and pretty soon you're just going to be a full-blown apostate. So to shut it all off and just agree with everything, that's LDS, and you'll never have to fear becoming an apostate. Well, they're saying the same things now. You know, once he started questioning the Trinity, then he starts questioning eternal punishment, then he starts questioning uh, preterism and, and futurism. And, and you know what? If something can't stand up to scrutiny, it needs to be deconstructed. If you start to go down a road and you start to scrutinize and you find out there are alternatives, even viable alternatives to consider, then it's okay. With God and Christ, the Holy Spirit, love, faith, those things can't be deconstructed. They're true. They work. And so on that we build our faith and we have fellowship with one another in the family of Christ. It's like, you know, it's kind of like being in a family with, with several brothers, um, and I have two brothers. You're going to get along with some of them uh, or all of them in certain ways, and there's going to be other things that you really differ on. For instance, my older brother, uh, Jeff, now deceased, he was a very different guy. He, he and I had very little in common except the same parentage and same siblings. Uh, he saw life, looked at life, approached life completely differently than I did and than I do. And yet he's my brother. And that's the case with Matt and Matt Slick, who we had on the show last week and who we're gonna air tonight, giving part two, talking about unconditional election. I'm gonna go first, we're gonna air it, and then he's gonna go. It's gonna take total combined Matt and I, I think about 25 or 30 minutes around there. And then we'll come back and take calls and read emails. And Matt will be joining us then through Skype. So if you have questions for Matt or whatever, he'll come on the show and you can talk to him through Skype. He'll be on your screen. But he's, like, he's my brother. He's a five-point Calvinist. He, he articulates it well. He, he believes it completely. I don't care. He's my brother in Christ. An Arminius who can do the same thing with Arminianism is going to be the same thing. The question is, can I be accepted in how I view things and the way I see the gospel? And can you? And can the other guy? And can the other girl? And can all that stuff? James Banta wrote uh, somewhere online, we have to come to oneness of the faith. 
not oneness in terms of uh, worldwide oneness, but when it comes to faith in Christ, we have to put away the differences. Last week, we had the privilege of having Matt uh, Slick here, and he talked about Calvinism. We didn't do much talking with each other, but we were able to share what we believe relative to the first point of Calvinism, the nature of humankind, with Matt suggesting total inability for humans to do anything at all to look toward God, and me standing with the idea that while we're sinful and certainly prone to wander, human beings do have an ability to respond to God or to reject Him. His premise was one, mine was the other. The following day, Matt and I, with our dutiful teams here in-house, took a few hours and pre-recorded our views. And uh, those points are uh, total depravity, which you did last week, unconditional election, which we'll do tonight. And then the following weeks, we're going to air our respective representations on limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, or what's known as once saved, always saved. As far as I'm concerned, though, the greatest thing that has come about through our conversation here on the show with Matt is not to sway you to Calvinism, Arminianism, or total reconciliationism, but to show that different views can exist and people can continue to love each other and consider each other all in the family under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In my opinion, if a thief can be with the Lord in paradise who apparently lacked complete knowledge of any and all of this stuff, then none of this is a hill to die on. Uh, I'm not so sure Matt would agree with that, but it is certainly my opinion. Again, if the good news has been received by an individual and there are brother and sister in Christ by virtue of accepting that good news, the differences can be settled or set aside with love and by the Spirit. So let's open up with prayer and then we'll get into our topic of unconditional election. You're going to see me first from last week, pre-recorded, and then Matt will follow up and then we will uh, watch a short spot and come up. And we'll, Matt will join us in Skype and you can call in at 801-590-8413 and pose your comments or questions. Father, we love you and we seek you. We thank you for Jesus, uh, who is the only way to heaven and who in this life to receive is the only way to escape hell, uh, the lake of fire, to be saved, Lord. So we admit this, we see this, we love the gospel, we're grateful for it. Be with us now as we consider the things that are said in Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week we were supposed to talk about uh, total depravity. We kind of overflowed into other points of uh, TULIP. Tonight, Matt and I are going to discuss unconditional election. We're sitting in the studio pre-recording this. And, uh, or echoing the sentiment that God unconditionally elects some to salvation, a reiteration, in my opinion, of total depravity and the need for God to step in and save without any, any input on our part. Of all the five points, I can't disagree with this point very much. I, 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 I almost completely agree with this point. However, I understand and see God's election relative to Scripture a little bit differently than my brother here, and I hope that I have it right. Let me explain by giving you kind of a simple illustration. Let's say that you're in your house and you're living your life oblivious to what's going on outside, and uh, and you hear a honk, and you don't realize it, but it's the UPS man. And you're standing in your house, and the UPS man has a truck full of platinum, diamonds, gold, silver, all in crates for you. He knocks, but you, you think, I'm not expecting anybody. You don't answer. He rings the bell. You think it's kids playing tricks. He screams, he yells, you go to the door, you don't open it, and you say, who is it? I'm the UPS man. And you say, I didn't order anything. Go away. And he says, I've got a delivery for you. Is it COD? You ask, it's all paid, completely paid for. Do I have to unload it? No, I'll unload it. Is there any obligation for me accepting this? None whatsoever. What's in it? I only deliver the packages, ma'am. It's for you. Do you want it or not? Now, it's your decision. It's your decision to open the door. 
It's yours. That's it. It's an unattached, utterly free gift, unconditionally presented, free delivery, unloaded for free, given for free. The question here is, where is the glory in someone receiving a gift like this? If someone sent you a gift like this, how is that giving you glory by receiving it? That's kind of what the presentation is in Calvinism, that we glory ourselves for receiving this awesome gift. That's not how it would be in this life. I mean, if someone came and gave us a gold watch, we wouldn't glory in the fact that we received it. We would be so grateful that someone gave it to us. We would be so amazed at their generosity, but we would not be glorying in the fact that we opened the door for the man who delivered it. He is knocking. He is offering the gifts unattached. He is persistent. He is so loving, our UPS God. He does not go away. He stays parked outside the door. He's done everything to reach us. All we have to do is open the door. That's not a boastful work. It's a work. It's not even a work at all. It's not something we take credit for. In fact, we are broken by the fact that it has taken us so long to open that door and receive that free gift. The idea of total depravity necessitates the doctrine of absolute unconditional election to the point that even opening the door is impossible for a human being. This is counter to a huge body of scripture that talks about these very things to receive, to believe, to choose to receive and believe, to seek God in spirit and in truth, to have a soft heart, to preach, to tell people to open their eyes. All of these uh, imprecations to people, to invitations uh, to people to get, come on, open, receive. That's all, the, that's all it is. Now, people with, who love the darkness more than the light, they won't. They don't, they're not seeking. They don't want God in spirit and in truth. So they never open that door. Now, if God is in control of our election so entirely that he has to force that door open, knock it down, and come in and deliver those goods, whether we want them or not, why does he say in Ezekiel 18, 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Too often we hear Calvinists say that the damnation of the non-elect is the pleasure of his will, the good pleasure of his will. They use pulling from Romans for that. It's to his good pleasure. But here God explicitly says that he takes no pleasure in the damnation of anybody, any of the wicked dying, but prefers that they turn from sin and live. How this idea fits into the Calvinistic scheme of unconditional elections, not clear to me. Uh, nor is it clear relative to Matthew uh, 23, 37. We, this was brought up last night by a caller. Jesus standing over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed God, he's saying, I have longed to gather your children together. I have longed to do it as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. But you were not willing. But you would not open that door. That is a perfect example. Things like this present extreme difficulty for this idea of total depravity and unconditional election. First of all, we have to assume that the choices of Jerusalem were the good pleasure of the Father. It was to his good pleasure that they, Jesus is weeping over them. He's saying he wishes they would have come, but it was to God's good pleasure. If it was, why was it so displeasing and heart-rendering to Jesus, who was always in agreement with God's divine will? Jesus wasn't praying over them as a man 
He always did the will of the Father. It wasn't his manliness crying over them, unaware of what God's intentions were. He only spoke and said what the Father wanted him to. That was not a hypostatic union of a man coming out and saying, oh, I feel so bad for Jerusalem. God doesn't want them to be saved, but I feel so bad. That was not it at all. It was simply Jesus saying, you had the opportunity to open a door and you didn't. Shouldn't have Jesus been pleased with their rejection because that was the Father's will? Also note Jesus is attributing the lost condition to Jerusalem to her own unwillingness, not the lack of election. Here Jesus, God in the flesh, was, unwill was willing to receive them if they were willing, but they weren't. This is a direct contradiction of Calvinistic assertion of total depravity and unconditional election. If Jesus would, that they would have come to him, but they would not, that's a condition. That's a condition. They would not open their heart. So is there an option in scripture that says no to this system? There's two systems essentially within Christianity. There's Calvinism and there's Arminianism. And I don't like either of them. Do I have that right as a Christian to not like either of them? I hope so. And I, that's really the point here. It's not so much that Matt is wrong and I am right, in my opinion. It's that Matt sees it one way and I see it another, and an Arminius sees it another way, and a Futurist sees it another way, and an Amillennial sees it another way, and a Preterist sees it this way. The question is, can we, amidst all these views, agree to disagree and love each other as a body? That's the question. So is there another way besides the Calvinist Arminius way? If you've been a viewer of our program, I'm going to quickly tell you what way it is, I believe, and it is supported by Scripture. This position accepts the biblical teaching of the complete sovereignty of God. So Matt and I are not in disagreement with it. It accepts the biblical teaching that God does, in fact, elect all who are his to, to salvation. He elects all who are his to salvation. A position that accepts the fact that God does give all people the freedom to choose and have the ability to open the door to salvation while reaping what they have sown. It's a position that supports the fact that God, our sovereign, loving God, will have total victory over the wiles of Satan and the will of men. He will win. He will have victory. It's a position I call total reconciliationism. And in four sentences, four paragraphs, this is how it works. By and through his mysterious foreknowledge of all things, God, out of his perfect loving goodness that he is, first elected a nation to bring forward the law, the prophets, and the Messiah. He knew that that nation would kill the same Messiah that came through them. God then elected those who are his through his foreknowledge of who would choose him. He didn't learn this. He knew it. He knew who would be his, and by his foreknowledge, he elected them to be sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ for those who suffered with him. These are saved from death and hell. Not all are saved. Just those God knew who would receive Christ by faith in this life. They are his. By his foreknowledge, God knew that few would receive his son by faith in this life. And so hell, it's a place, it's a dark place for misery for people to consider. We don't know that much about it. Scripture tells us that hell gives up its dead. It says that, gives up its dead, right? And they all stand before the great white throne and the books are open and another book is open, the Lamb's book of life. And what do they do? They look to see if those who were in hell name are written in the Lamb's book of life. How could someone who is in hell's name be written in the Lamb's book of life? It could because there, their knees bow. Their tongue confessed that Jesus was the Christ and they were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are cast into what is called the lake of fire. Do you know where the lake of fire is? It's in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels. It's not a pit down in the earth. It's not synonymous with hell. Revelation tells us it's in the presence. What's burning them in the lake of fire? His presence. What's his presence? It's love. It's light. 
It's purging and burning and move, removing all the things that are obstacles to their obstinate ways. They will come out of there after a cup, which is a limited amount, is poured upon them. The cup of his wrath. It's not endless stripes. You pour a cup once, it's done. You're beaten with a few stripes. Do you get beaten with a few stripes again and again? Eternality of punishment? That's completely ungodly, and it's not biblical. It's only read to be biblical by people who desire it. How could you desire somebody to be suffering forever and ever and ever? God doesn't want that, but he lets us have it by our choice. The length of time in that age is unknown. One second in it in hell, one second in the lake of fire is no good. You're going to hate it. And so we preach Jesus. And we say, believe in him now. Open the door. He's out honking. He's knocking. Holy supported by scripture and sound contextual understanding. Total reconciliation allows God to remain more than just sovereign, but just, loving, merciful. It allows man to have free will in response to those he chose to, who choose to serve him. It allows for us to reap what we sow. It's very responsible. We reap what we sow, as Paul said. It allows for God to elect all of us to places he knew we would be used for the best according to his foreknowledge and our faith or lack of it. It, it admits to hell. It admits to a lake of fire, to future discipline. It, admi it admits the glorious blessing and reward for those who choose Jesus in this life by faith in God making them joint heirs through his spirit. And it makes Jesus the author and finisher of the faith for all, for all. We're gonna get to that point next after Matt talks. Not just a few God has capriciously elected to life. Of all the five points, unconditional election is the one I agree with the most, with the one exception. He unconditionally elects. All we have to do is open the door. Seekers do. Lovers of truth do. Lovers of dark don't. But God will have his way in the end. All right, you got to hear all that uh, falderall and rhetoric and accept it or not, it, you know, it's open. Matt's going to give some real good arguments for uh, unconditional election next, which is uh, uh, in harmony with five-point Calvinism. So let's listen to Brother Matt. All right, so the second letter in TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is unconditional election. We always have to define our terms. What does unconditional election mean? And what it means is really simply one thing, that God does not look into the future in any way, shape, or form and consider what is in a person, inequality in a person, in order to elect, in order to choose that person for salvation. Now we know from 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God chooses us for salvation. That's what the text says. He chooses us. We're not choosing ourselves. Romans 9.14 says that it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. Talking about the issue of God's sovereign election, talking about His choice and His work with people. It says it does not depend upon the man who runs or the man who wills, but upon God who has mercy. That's Romans 9.14. So God does not, this is very important, He does not consider anything in the person, whether it's going to be foreseen knowledge, foreseen goodness, foreseen anything, in order to pick that person, to choose to, that person, to elect that person for salvation. This is a critical doctrine. I think it's very, very important. And the reason it is important because, well, for one thing, we are sinners by nature. We went over this on the issue of total depravity. The Bible says that we're full of evil, we're haters of God, we can do no good, we can't seek for God. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful and things like that. So God is not going to look into the future to see what's going to be good in us potentially and choose us. It's unconditioned. Now, the Bible says there's no partiality with God. That's Romans 2.11. But also we see in James chapter 2, if you read James 2, you'll find out what the Scriptures teach about what partiality is. And James talks about, you see a rich person coming in dressed in fine linen, fine clothing, and you say, please sit here, please sit there. It's a quality about that person that we might look at and then judge that person as being more worthy of a better position. That's the kind of partiality that the Bible speaks about and condemns. It is not that God looks in the future to see who's going to pick him. This is so important. But so many people think that in their sincerity, 
in their ability, that God can see what He can do with them, that He's going to choose them. That makes God a responder and a respecter of individuals. It makes Him partial to the individual in contradiction to what the Scripture says. So unconditional election is the act of God's sovereign will where He, before the creation of the world, chooses an individual or group of people to accomplish a specific purpose. In the case of Christians, it's for salvation. As I've already quoted 2 Thessalonians 2.13, He chose us from the beginning for salvation through Jesus. Now I've already quoted before, last week, Acts 13.48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We can go to uh, Luke, excuse me, Matthew 24, 22, where Jesus says, in the last days many false prophets and false Christs will arise and deceive many, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, the word elect is really interesting because in Greek we can basically have three main words that are used for elect or to choose. We have eklektos, eklege, and eklegomai. And these different words are used in different ways throughout the Bible, but it deals with the issue of being chosen. So eklektos, for example, for the sake of the elect, was already read in Matthew 24, 22. Or Matthew 24, 24, to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Or 24, 31, God will gather His elect from the four winds. And it goes on. And we have uh, the word translated into chosen. Matthew 24, 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Rufus is a chosen individual in the Lord. That's Romans 16, 13. A lot of times people say, no, what God does is He chooses groups of people, and inside the groups of people, individuals make their own choices. But here we see Rufus is a specifically chosen individual. That's Romans 16, 13. You can also go to Acts, I think it's Acts 9, 15, that range where it says Paul, excuse, Paul is, is redeemed. You know, Jesus appears to him, knocks him off the horse, and uh, Jesus is talking in a vision to Ananias and says, he's a cho regarding Paul, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He is a chosen person, a chosen instrument. First Peter 1 1, Peter writes to those who are chosen by God. The elders are the chosen lady and her children. That's 2 John 1. Uh, 2 John 13, the children of the chosen sister. As you can see, and you should be able to see clearly, the Bible teaches that individuals are also chosen. Now I'd love to be able to go through Romans 9, 9 through 23 sometime, where it talks about the vessel and the man and the individuals that are chosen for specific callings and works. This is what the Bible says, Revelation 17, 14. Those who are uh, with Jesus are the chosen ones. The chosen ones. And I already went to Acts uh, 9, 15. Paul, a chosen vessel. Romans 9, 11. God chose to love Jacob and to hate Esau. Now, a lot of people do not like this idea of God choosing. And the reason they don't, and this is my opinion, I'm not trying to project motives or reasons into people's hearts, but in my 35 years of doing apologetics and dealing with people and going over these issues, I just have an opinion and you can dismiss it all you want. But I suspect that what's going on, as I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about this issue who reject this, they, don't, they reject it because they don't like the idea of God being the sovereign Lord. They want themselves to be the sovereign in the choice of their own salvation, in the ability of their own hearts and minds. Now, I'm not trying to project this on everybody who doesn't agree with me. I'm just saying that this is something I've seen many times before that people very often will say, I don't like that because I'm the one who's got to choose. And besides, they'll say, look, Matt, if God is the one who chooses us, how can we then be responsible for, for going to hell? If God chooses us, how can we be responsible for the sins that we're going to be doing? This is a common objection. Well, it's real simple. We are born into sin. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We are by nature children of wrath, the Bible says, by nature and by essence. All God's got to do is let everybody just go to hell. That's where we all belong anyway. That's all He's got to do. He's not obligated to save anybody. He saves us out of the kindness of His own heart, the kindness of His own will. He doesn't look to see who's going to be good enough to be saved. It's just not possible. If God were to let every individual who's ever existed simply go to hell their natural way, He's perfectly just and just as loving. This is a hard thing for a lot of people to understand. But just as the Bible says that there are elect angels in 1 Timothy 5.21, there are elect people as well. God has, out of the kind counsel of His own will, predestined, chosen and predestined people for salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 5. And he did this according to the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1 11. He does this because of his sovereignty. 
not because of ours. He does it because of His goodness, not because of ours. He has no partiality, Romans 2, 11, James 2. He's the one who chooses us. Now, God chooses one person and not another, and people object. Well, that's not fair. Yes, it is fair. It's fair because it's what God decides to do, not what man says, not what man wants. The idea of a lot of people is, no, I want God to be the way I want God to be. I want God to give me that choice, so it's my responsibility. Fine. Then you join with Eve in the Garden of Eden, talking to the evil one, and you say, look, I can see what is right, and I can see what is good, and I don't care what the Word says of God, but I'm going to choose for myself. What I will decide is good and bad, and I'll make a choice. The sovereignty that we desire in our own hearts is due to the total depravity that flows through all of our veins, that echoes in the, the Edenic fall down through history in our hearts and our souls and our minds as we resist God and we desire to be our own little gods in varying degrees. I, I'm guilty of this myself when I desire to do things my way and not God's way. I war with my sin, even as Paul said in Romans 7, 18 through 25, we war with the sin that we still have even though we're redeemed. But God loves us, and He unconditionally elected us from the foundation of the world. It can be no other way. Think about it. 1 John 3.20 says, God knows all things. When He created the universe, He didn't look and learn into the future. That would violate His omniscience. He knows what He's going to bring about when He creates that universe, where every atom is going to be, because this is what God ordains. It cannot be any other way. Since He makes the heart, and He makes the mind, and He makes the body, and He makes the soul, and He puts them in that place at that time, does He not know the exact outcome of every single circumstance that He's ordained will be? Of course He does. For someone to say, well, no, 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 it's up to our free will, and up to our choice, and up to our ability, well, then that's just, well, it's a form of idolatry. Because that's not the case. Now, Sean said that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want to address that because it's something that is often raised. It's like saying, well, if he elects some to salvation and lets the others go to hell, then he's taking delight and pleasure over them. I never say that that's what he does, but let me read what the Bible says. Because it does say in Ezekiel 18.32, does God take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And he says, no. But you know what it says in Deuteronomy 28:63, God delights to destroy the people of Israel. He does. And the word there in, in Hebrew, I believe, is so'os, if I remember correctly. And He desires to do this. It is a desire and it's a want. And there are other verses like that in the Bible. We can go to Mark 7, excuse me, Mark 10, excuse me, Mark 4, excuse me, 10 through 12, where Jesus speaks in parables so people will not be saved. Now, someone might say, well, why then would he do that if total depravity is true and they can't believe on their own? Because Jesus, God in flesh, the creator of the universe, when he said, let there be light, there was light. And he's speaking the word of God. And I believe that because he's who he is, God in flesh, that when he speaks and he says, repent, they're going to repent. If he commands it, it's going to occur. So for the non-elect, he spoke in parables so they will not be saved. And you can disagree with me all you want, but go to, uh, go to Mark 4, 10 through 12, and you read that that is the case. He spoke in parables so they will not be saved. If he wants everyone to be saved equally, then why does he say he sends a deluding influence in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? So that people will believe the lie. If he wants every individual to be saved equally, and it's up to the individual, then why does he, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, why does he speak in such a way and say that people are given over to the depravity of their hearts and their minds? Well, some say, well, Matt, if they're already depraved, why give them over to that? It's further judgment, that's why. Further judgment upon them that they might accomplish even the desires of God in that judgment. People say, I don't like that. Then take, excuse me, take Acts 4, 27, 28 out of your Bible where God says that He predestined Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Gentiles of Israel to crucify Jesus. That means they had to sin in order to do that. Yet it was by the predetermined plan and purpose of God that it occurred. There are far more deeper doctrines about this associated with this than we have time to go in. I teach Bible studies on this, and we take hours to go through the Scriptures and go through them in detail and see how they fit together when you see the broad scope of things. But let me tell you, it is not the case that we in our sovereignty are wise enough or good enough to be able to choose God. God, in His unconditional election, and that's what this segment is about, the unconditional election means he does not look in the future to see who's going to pick him. 
No one's going to. He does not look in the future at a condition inside of somebody, like say, for example, in my heart, and say, Matt Slick is going to be worth saving. Wrong. Or Matt Slick can be used to do good things, but so-and-so can't be. <laughs> Wrong. God is the one who's sovereign, and God can do with his broken vessels what he desires. He's the sovereign king. He does not consider anything in any of us worthy to be saved, and then chooses us based on that. Now, some say, but Matt, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, let me ask you a question. Does God know everyone? And the answer quite simply is no, he does not. Does he know all things? Yes, he does, 1 John 3.20. But the Bible says, Jesus says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. And he says, And I, I will say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. If God says, I never knew you, it means you're not saved. In Galatians 4, uh, verses 8 and 9, When you did not know God, you served by nature those which are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather are known by Him, now you serve the true and living God. Now the word for know there is gnosko. When we go to Romans 8, 29, where it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, it's pro-gnosko. God only knows the believers. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The foreknown ones are the predestined ones. It doesn't say of all the people he looked in the future to see who's going to believe in whatever condition, some of them he predestined. It does not say that. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. They're the same ones. He only knows those whom he's called in that saving way, the way God uses those words in Scripture. I suggest do a study on that word know, K-N-O-W. See how God uses it. See how Christ uses it. You'll see that he doesn't know anybody he, I mean, except for Christians. He only knows the believers. He only says, I know you, to the believers, to the elect, to the chosen, whom he has brought to himself unconditionally, not based on us, not based as one in us, but only in the heart and mind of God, in the loving call of God. Because if he did not do that, no one would ever be saved. He gets the glory because he is so good and kind to save anybody in the first place. Amen and amen. All right, as I mentioned before, uh, Brother Matt, uh, we just played Matt. Uh, I agree with 99% of what Matt said. Uh, on the subject of God calling, reaching, sovereignty, predestined, electing, all of that. That's what makes this, the subject difficult. And, and so, um, and it's why there's division because within every uh, system, if you want to call them systems, within every belief system, there's truth. I mean, there has to be or else people wouldn't embrace them. So we're seeking for truth. And if Matt opens your eyes to something that you haven't understood or, or known, praise God. If, if it's biblical and it's sound and supportive, then that's a wonderful thing. And if I do that, and if someone else does that, that's great. Uh, we see through a glass darkly. We do not have a system of this thing down. We might sound like we do, but we are just feebly trying to understand God who sent his son, who ascended and hasn't return to hang out with us here in the flesh to continue to talk to us. We have words that are translated. We read them by the Spirit. We, and, and God, I believe, as I said last time, creates attention so that we can learn to agree to disagree, to love each other in spite of our differences, to fellowship with people who come in who are of different uh, worldviews, etc., etc. So grateful for uh, Matt Slick giving us that. Next week, we're going to continue on. We're not done tonight, but we're going to continue on with uh, the L, Limited Atonement. I think that's right. Tulip. And, uh, and then Matt is going to join us after we take a look at this. I think. Well, Matt's joined us now. He's disappeared. One, two, three, one, two, three. Blesses the man.
which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. All right, Matt Slick, you there? Can you hear me? I hear you. All right. Hey, Matt, uh, we're going to take a caller. It's Matt from Cedar Falls on line one. Let's see what he has to say. Matt from Cedar Falls, Iowa. You're on the air. Yeah, you need to turn your computer down, Matt. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, you're on the air with Matt Slick and Sean McCraney. Uh, I actually just had a quick, I just saw both presentations really quick. I thought they were, you know, actually both really good. I did think that they kind of agreed with each other. I just have some questions in regards to some statements that you made at the beginning of this episode. Okay. Okay. Uh, here in particular, I'm looking at Revelation. I'm looking at the great white throne gift. Okay. Now, in terms of uh, the wine, that's the wine of the wrath that's poured out, actually from chapter 14 where it says uh, anyone who is talking about the deep and his hand engineer says those who receive his mark and forehead or his hand they don't drink the uh, wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture uh, and they shall be uh, tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the, and in the presence of the Lamb yeah. and I noticed that you said that they would be called back up from from hell or something like that and they're in the presence of the Lord and it's his presence that's Providing them light or something like that. The scripture says that they're tormented in his presence with fire and brimstone. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, um, I think that they are tormented. And I think they are in torments. Uh, brimstone and uh, is a word that is used as a touchstone for rubbing away, not destroying. A pool of my, the destroying word for a pool of my doesn't. Uh, mean completely uh, obliterate. It means to uh, eliminate, cleanse, purge, purgatory if you want, whatever it is. But, you know, uh, this isn't a hill to die on, and it's really a side issue to Calvinism. I mentioned it because I think it's a, it's a, a third way for Christians to understand and view the Bible. I know it's rejected by most and called heresy, but uh, I think we've done a lot of study on it online. And you're, you're asking me to come now, and my mind's on Calvinism, and go back to Basilio and all the stuff that has to do with those passages. But we have covered them in pretty good depth. We're not alone. Preterist Archive covers it. I know Matt's not a preterist, but that's not our topic for now, so I really can't answer it adequately and justly. But, you're, but your point is well taken, and let anyone who's searching look at that point. Does that help? Okay. Well, yeah, that was uh, that was really what I was talking about. Like I said, I did see both presentations. I thought, you, you know, you both did a decent job of Praise uh, God. presenting it. Like I said, both sides really seemed like they were kind of, you know, agreeing with each other. Uh, it, it, there were certain points where you did, where I noticed that you didn't agree with Matt, but, I, you know, the stuff that Matt was saying was basically coming out of Scripture, and so that's the stuff, yeah. you know, that I tend to review. Uh, so, yeah, that was, I thought both presentations were okay. Again, the only reason I, I happened to, have that particular question. I didn't mean to get off the topic. It's just that that was mentioned at the start of the show, so that was what my question was in regards to. This was even before I saw the presentation. So that's appreciate that's just, it. Yeah, Thanks, Matt. God bless you, brother. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Bye, bye. Matt Slick, can I ask you? Some, we had we didn't talk much, you and I. Uh, can I ask you a few things just to help my understanding? Sure. It's not to try to trap or anything else. I just don't get this. All right. Listening to you talk about unconditional election and total depravity the week before. This isn't a setup, so answer honestly. You, God knows all things and always has known all things. Is that correct? Right. He's not learning, right? That's correct. All right. Would you say and agree with First John that he's love? Yes, First John 4, 8. Yeah. All right. Would you say that his will is done? In all things. In all things. All right. We, in theology, there was called a decretive will, prescriptive will, permissive will. Decretive will in that uh, 
he decrees certain things that exist like the universe and, and things the birth of Christ prescriptive is don't lie don't cheat don't steal but he permits us to lie cheat and steal so it's some of the basics that some theologians have have uh, subdivided God's will into so we say yes or no, it gets a little more complicated but yeah his and will what's, is done. what's the third one theologically speaking it's permissive he permits it's his will to permit sin to occur for example right so my question is he is love he knows all things why, Matt, would he create a system where he would only choose to elect filthy, rotten sinners from a pile of filthy, rotten sinners? I don't understand how God can be love. He knows all things. He has an option, and he's picking from rotten eggs according to your description of us, he's only chosen some rotten eggs and not all rotten eggs. I don't, can you ex help me understand that, how you reconcile him being love and yet only choosing some rotten eggs? Well, that would be uh, an answer that only God himself could uh, address. Why would God do what he does? He does what he does because he does what he does. He has told us, for example, in Romans 9, 16 through, or Romans 9, uh, 22 and 23, what if God was willing to endure less patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Mm -hmm. And he did so, that he might show. Oh, he does these things. Uh, why? why? Because of, the, of, of his will. Now, he is love, but he's also just. He's also holy. And I'm of the opinion that only God cannot sin, that all sentient beings, except for the elected angels who are chosen not to sin, Second Timothy 5.21, that all sentient beings, unless they're elected not to sin as the angels, are going to sin because they're not holy. Okay. So out of that, uh, God just elected those whom he chose. I don't know why he didn't do more. I don't know why he didn't do less. I don't know. Um, a couple follow-up questions to that, and I've lost it, but when you're talking, I lost it. Oh, that, your Romans 9, that's posed as a hypothetical, by the way. He says, what if God? Yeah. Yeah. So it is a hypothetical if he chose some to be elect and some to damnation. Paul hypothetically presents that, not God has. I just want our audience to understand that when that passage is that's, used. That's one perspective. Uh, but it does say that he loved one and hated another, raised up for a certain individual for certain reasons, does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy. He raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of destroying him. He hardens no who he wants, etc. He does all this. He makes vessels of wrath for honorable use and vessels which are individuals for dishonorable use. What if God be willing to do this? If he wants to do that. He can do that, and he does do it. And that's why it says that he did so among the rich and he did so to make none the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory verse 23 yeah we can discuss Romans 9 I'm familiar with it in the, in the counter arguments but uh, this really isn't a counter argument I'm trying to understand Matt I really am because if there's something I'm missing I want to know it but would you agree that we have witnesses we have a witness of our own conscience would you agree that Scripture speaks of our conscience. That, sure, Romans 1. Yeah, Romans does. 1. Perfect example. So we have a testimony, if you will, coming from the LDS side. We have a witness in our conscience that speaks to us. In my conscience, I have a very difficult time accepting the end result of this model called Calvinism. My conscience says God is love. We can look to him for all, th all these things. He's the creator. He lets the rain shine on the just and the unjust. All these good things about God. He so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son. All these things. My conscience tells me that it's not reconcilable that this model, which testifies of something different, can tell me that God has just elected some and the rest he knew and he created to burn forever that is the, I have a I have a problem of two witnesses in my heart I have a witness of Calvinism and I have a witness of conscience which scripture does speak to 
And if you have two witnesses that are against each other, which one am I supposed to listen to? When people say God is love, and then they focus on that one attribute, they are actually misrepresenting God. Because God certainly is love, but he's also just, he's also holy. And you have to take all of his attributes together. Whenever anybody raises a single attribute above other attributes or represents God that way, then they're misrepresenting God because they're not looking at him in totality. When we say that God elects some, I don't know why God doesn't elect more, even though I have a theory that it's due to the Christians, and that's another thing. But, you know, does God want to make people like that? Well, Proverbs 16:4, he makes all things, even the wicked for the day of destruction. That's what it says. Sure. And I don't like that. I, but that's I agree says. with it. I agree with that. The wicked for the day of destruction. But does it mean forever and ever and ever? Well, that's what? that's what we can get into on on eternal torment and things like that. If yeah. You do that. And I'm I'm trust me, I'm quite familiar with the arguments on that as well. I've had a lot of dealings with it, right. and I can show you that the eternal uh, their position is not correct. But nevertheless, the issue here is God is just. He is going to punish people. He is going to, according to the law. And if he doesn't do it, he's an unholy, and he's unrighteous. Does so it, doesn't the, James... The question, but the question goes both ways. Why would God, let's take the Arminian perspective, because it's often contrasted with Calvinism. Why would God make people he knew of their own so-called free will would choose to uh, reject him and then suffer? Why would he do that? He, he wouldn't. That's why I don't agree with Arminianism either. Well, both because, are foolishness. Well, I'm just saying that's the other position. Right. It cuts both ways. But, but I know your position. You know, you want to say that um, people suffer, and they go to, they go to uh, a place of suffering, and then they're eventually reconciled, except that Colossians 2.14 says he canceled out the certificate of debt and, uh, on the cross. So there, can't, there is no sin debt that anybody has if he died for everybody who ever lived. This is next week's topic. Faithlessness. That would mean then that nobody could go suffer for the sins that have been canceled. Failing period. Love. And that's another topic. We can get into that more specifically next week. Okay. As far as election goes, God chooses whom he wants for salvation. Okay. I wish he chose more. I don't know why he does. You wish there was. God knows how to give gifts far better than we do, but yeah, you does. wish he did a better job. Yeah, but I'm not God. I don't know if he's ever talked to you I, and said, uh, I, I need I, advice on something. I don't get this, Matt. Let me ask you something. James says that mercy robs justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. You're saying if we just hold God up as love, which John the Beloved, by the way, did, he said he is love and he excluded all the other things. You're saying that we have to take all attributes and put them on an equal basis, and I'm not sure that's correct. If God mercy can triumph over justice, which is what Christ did, it was merciful that he even sent his son, showing that mercy can triumph over evil and darkness, why can't that carry through to everything that we see God about? Why do we have to place justice on an equal footing with exact mercy when he sent his son to take care of it all? But that's exactly why you do, because he took care of it. That was justice. Okay. The law had to be met. Okay. And if the law is not met, then God approves of sin. Okay. So he was just in it as Jesus was made under the law, Galatians okay. 4, 4, and never broke the law, 1 Peter 2, 22. I agree. His justice is absolutely met and is just as, as important as his holiness and his love. Okay, his so, love so, that motivated him to save us, but it's his justice that requires the cross. Okay, and I agree with you, Matt. So he sent his son and justice was met for the whole world, for the whole world. Well, and the sin, wait, let me finish now. And the sin debt was paid. And so people don't go to the lake of fire for their sin in the flesh that was paid for. The, everything was nailed to the cross, except for faithlessness and failing to love the new commandment. It's a new commandment so we can fail, so we can sin. James talks about if you know to do good and you don't do it, it is sin. So we can, as Christians... The debt was paid, but we can heap upon ourselves sin. Can we not? Sin of faithlessness and, and, not, and failing to love? Well, you made a mistake, no offense meant, but oh, faith, okay. 
the commandment uh, to believe in God is in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before him. We are commanded to believe and trust in the true and living God. The issue of faith being separated from all other things, as a lot of people like to mistakenly say, Jesus paid for the sins of everything except faithlessness. Really? Well, uh, you know, what, a, what do you do with the atheist who is faithless until he was 80 years old and then believes in Christ and dies a year later? Is faithlessness not paid for? Of course it is. Faith is part of the requirement but of the law believed. to believe in God. Yes, because God granted it, he believed, Philippians 129. Okay. Faith well. is part of the law requirement, Exodus 20. So did Jesus pay for all of our sins or not? And the only sin that we know it will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come is spoken of in Matthew 12, 22-32, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what is that's that? That's what's stated. And what saying is saying that Jesus did his miracles by the power of the, uh, okay. the devil. And that's an interpretation of Matt? There is a, we've gone through that and we've talked about it at the best we can and I think it says something very different. That's that's really? the old, oh, absolutely, Matt. But I don't want to debate you on it. We, question, though. I'll show you something Matt, that you may not Matt, be aware of. Matt, we have a call. This is the caller part of the show. Okay. If you are a Calvinist, how do you know that you are going to be saved? Or if you're a Calvinist, how do you know that you are have been one who is saved? Now, I know you've heard this question. Explain to our audience how... A, how you know you've been one of the elect? Because I'm saved. Okay. It's that simple? It's that simple? Okay, yeah, I'm saved too, saved. but I'm not a Calvinist. Well, just because you're not a Calvinist doesn't mean you can't be saved. Okay. And just because people are saved doesn't mean they're all Calvinists. But in, as far as this perspective goes, when someone says to a Calvinist, how do you know you're saved? Or how do you know you're one of the elect? Uh, because I'm saved. How does someone know saved. they're? How do they know they're saved as a Calvinist, Matt? Well, oh yeah, I know I'm saved because the blood of Christ was shed. I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has cleansed me of my sins. He showed me His love. I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the communicatio idiomatum, the imputation of Christ's uh, righteousness to me, my uh, sin imputed to Him on the cross. All these these doctrines of the faith, which First Corinthians two fourteen says the unbeliever cannot receive or understand or believe. So what you just said there, if I can summarize and correct me if I'm wrong. You really know you're saved if you embrace all those things you just mentioned. No. I didn't say, uh, no, this is an issue of logic. I did not say you're saved if you embrace all those. Okay. I said, you're saved if you know, because the First Corinthians 2.14 says a natural man does not receive the things of God. He does not. They don't. So they don't like it. You're right. Unbelievers don't believe in the deity of Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection for our sins. Christians believe that. So I believe that. And I'm a believer because I believe that. And so th th that kind of thing, along with other doctrines okay. that unbelievers just are not going to, to, uh, to accept. One, one final question, and this was brought up by a pastor who attended when you were here in town. And by the way, thanks again for coming uh, because it's really opening up eyes and hearts to your views and to some things I'm saying, etc. But the pastor said something really interesting. And he said, listen, if you have been elected or if you have been saved, if you're in the body of Christ, then what does, what does Calvinism, what does it mean? Why, does it, why even talk about it? Why even bother ourselves with all this? If you have made it in, why even talk about it? Why not focus on saving those or sharing, in your case, sharing with those who haven't heard? Well, I was invited to talk about Calvinism, but my focus is not Calvinism. My focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this context of being invited onto a show to talk about that, and then someone says, why Calvinism? Because I was invited on a show to speak okay. about it. All right, That's wait one why. second. I got to make one clarification. Matt has repeated this four times, and I like truth. I was contacted by a couple who wrote an email and said, Matt would like to be on your show to discuss this. I want to make that very clear. I did not invite Matt to come on the show and discuss Calvinism. That's a very important, I have the email, you can read it. So I just want oh, to make, okay. so we can talk clearly on this matter. I don't want it to seem like I called and say, hey, come on, and we don't do that, all right? So <laughs> okay. it yeah, does I, matter, Matt, truth matters. It, absolutely. And, and, that's what I, yeah, and Nathan and Lindsay, you know, they were great and awesome. They arranged everything. They did. But, I uh, love them. Yeah, they're great folks. 
And so, you know, that's why I'm on the show is, is in order to clarify the issues of Calvinism. Yeah. And that, that's it. But if you were to be, hang out with me for a week here at the house, you'd know I rarely mention it. Unless someone calls at the office here and then I, I talk about it or go on the radio show, someone asks me and I talk about it. Great you know, answer. It. My brother, but, we are out of time. You're always enlightening. You're so well informed. I know you love the Lord. Your wife loves the Lord. Grateful to Nathan and Lynette. We're going to come back next week, talk about limited atonement. We'll see you then. Good job, guys. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out. I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.